Greetings and welcome to the Five by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews, though less rapid this episode as we've reached episode 100. I must admit, when we started working on this podcast in November 2016, I had no idea we'd ever reach episode 100. I was frankly surprised we got more than 10 listeners, but we did, and we owe that both to our fantastic contributors and amazing listeners. We couldn't have done it without y'all. So for a special treat for episode 100, I've thrown the contributor count out the window, and we've decided to discuss the games that got us into the board gaming hobby. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Carcassonne. One night, about seven or eight years ago, our friend Mark Rucker, hey Mark, invited us over to his apartment to eat dinner and play hearts. We'd been playing hearts regularly for a while, and though it's better than other three-handed trick takers, it's still not ideal. We were sitting around the table, and Mark said, Hey, uh, have you guys ever heard of German board games? I laughed, and I said, Well, that seems pretty specific, Mark. He went to his closet, and he brought out a blue box with a castle on the cover. He said, I think you guys will like this. It was, of course, Carcassonne. We played it, I lost, and immediately insisted that we play it again, and again, and again. When we got home that night, Megan jumped on Amazon and ordered a copy of Carcassonne for us. We played it every day for a month. We became obsessed with it. We discovered new strategies. We spun our own emergent tactical rivalry. Now, at the time, we had no idea that capital B board gaming was a thing. I, I wasn't on social media. I didn't have any other friends that played board games, and I, I certainly didn't know there were hundreds of thousands of very serious board gamers in the world. We had sort of created our own two-person cosmos of Carcassonne play and discussion. Of course, later we got more games. We played them. We started watching reviews. We started reading Board Game Geek. We started posting on Board Game Geek. We started going to conventions. We started listening to podcasts. And we started a games podcast. The trajectory of our lives was significantly diverted by our friend Mark in a cardboard box. Five or ten years ago, it was fairly safe to assume that majority of board gamers had probably played Carcassonne. I'm not sure that's true any longer. As more new people flood into tabletop, and a grotesque number of new games comes out every year, why bother learning a 72-tile family game from 20 years ago? There's no new Kickstarter. There are no ultra-deluxified components. There's no ultimate big box. There aren't endless, unnecessary expansions. Okay, well, some of that isn't true. There are multiple ultimate big boxes, and more expansions and promos than any rational person could ever keep track of. There are also like 25 different editions and versions of it, but you don't need any of them. While we own multiple copies of Kark, multiple different editions, multiple different re-themes and related games, and most of the classic runs of expansions, we only play the base game like 90% of the time. A am I a Carcassonne collector? I mean, yeah, I guess, sort of. But should you be? No, probably not. You should order yourself a copy of the base game. Look, I don't tell people to buy things. I don't think you need to own more games. But I do think that you need to own Carcassonne if you don't already. We're such strong Kark evangelists that it's often our default gift for people. I truly think that anybody over the age of about six can learn the basic game, and anyone over eight can learn the advanced game. When I teach it, I usually start by not playing people's first game with the farmers, just knights and robbers. It's not as competitive, but it's easier to wrap your head around, and I've taught Kark a lot of times to a lot of different people. At work, family functions, friends' houses, wherever. The basic pitch, if you've never played it for some reason, is that you draw a tile, you place it next to another tile on the table so that the sides match, that's roads, fields, or cities. If you want, you can place one of your seven little wooden people on the tile you've just laid. You're looking for majorities and areas, and you can't place a person where other people already are. Now, it's more complicated than that, of course, but you get the general idea. So, not only is Klaus Jürgen Reed's Carcassonne the game that really got us into hobby gaming, but it's actually remained my favorite tabletop game. 
According to my BGG account, I have played around 1,000 different games in the last five years, so I do feel like I have some perspective on this. The beauty of Kark is really in the emergence and the long play cycles, especially with the same opponent over time. I once heard game designer and board gaming big brain Jeff Inglestein describe Carcassonne as a war game, and while I think he's sort of kidding, he's definitely not wrong. Two strong players head-to-head in Kark can choose to play friendly or choose to play mean. It serves us as a casual and light after-work game, as well as a brain-burning tactical assault when we feel like it. The first two expansions, Inns and Cathedrals and Traders and Builders, are solid additions to the game. I recommend them. But beyond that, it really starts to spiral out of control. Uh, There are several big-box versions that collect various expansions. I think we have around eight of the standalone sequels. They all sort of use the basic idea of Kark and either retheme it or add new rules, or in some cases are just really a different tile lane game altogether that just got rebranded as a Carcassonne. Besides our beat-up original vanilla copy, we actually get the most play out of our double Kark set, which you can't buy retail, but you can make yourself out of two sets. Make sure, of course, to buy two sets from the same print run so they match. You want to take a dry erase marker and line the edges of the tiles in one set so that you can separate them back out later. So, of all of these things, what should you buy? Look, just buy the base game if you don't own it already. Unfortunately, it's increased in price in the last few years, and new, it's about $35 most places. But you can easily pick up a used copy on eBay for around $20, which I think is probably the way to go. So, who should play Carcassonne? Everybody. Everyone. Anyone who enjoys games will like Carcassonne. There is something here for anyone that wants to sit down at a game table. I can't recommend it highly enough. I give Carcassonne 72 out of 72 landscape tiles that changed my life and sucked me into tabletop games and, for better or worse, tabletop game podcasting. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Wear a mask and wash your hands. Like a lot of modern board gamers, my start came in the early 2000s when I excitedly wandered into a board game store, figuring games had probably moved on from my childhood favorites of Space Hop and Payday, and picked up a copy of Carcassonne on recommendation from the clerk, followed a short time later by Munchkin and Ticket to Ride. Thanks, Pegasus Games in Madison. But this newfound hobby was short-lived as we had young kids, and most of my games gathered dust until they started getting older which is why I've chosen Scotland Yard to cover for episode 100, as it's the game that got the whole family into modern board games. I know, some people will have trouble calling Scotland Yard modern. Scotland Yard is one of those classic designed-by-committee games from the 80s that it seems a lot of people played as kids. I did not, but that's okay. That just means I got to experience it as an adult, playing it with my kids as their next step in gaming beyond trouble, and launching them into the hobby. In Scotland Yard, you are playing a classic one-against-many secret movement game. One player is Mr. or Mrs. X, the notorious bank thief. They start with a pad of paper, a player marker, and a few movement tokens for taxis, buses, or the subway. They start by picking a start token, which tells them their start location on the map, where each space has a unique number. To move, any player must discard a token of the type of movement they are using. Player X writes down their new space that they've moved to on their player sheet, and then covers up that space with the token that they've used. Now the other players move. The rest are detectives, they are trying to catch player X. They also draw a starting token, but their pieces go straight on the board for everyone to see, and on their turn they give their movement tokens to player X. This means as the game goes on, player X gets more and more options for how to move around, while the detectives get fewer and fewer options. At the start of the game, it's pretty much a shot in the dark as to where player X is. 
but on certain specifically marked rounds, player X is seen and must place their marker on the board. They do not move the piece, but instead leave it there until they are next sighted. This plus using the movement token shows the detectives what options are available to player X from where they were, based on what transportation they have taken. If at any point a detective lands on player X, they must admit that they are captured and reveal themselves. If player X eludes capture for 22 rounds, enough to fill their sheet, then they win. This may sound difficult, but play actually gets easier for player X as the game goes on. Often detective players start to run short on certain tickets. Maybe they no longer have subway tickets and therefore player X can use the subway to stay ahead of them. Or maybe players are out of taxi tickets, in which case player X can just hang out in a small neighborhood that the detectives can't enter. But life isn't always easy for player X because the detectives know when they will become visible. At which point I found it best to be positioned on subway and bus spots for quick movement to where they are. Don't stress it too much though because player X still has two tricks up their sleeve. They have two double movement tokens. One of those two black tokens can be turned in to take a second movement before the detectives can react. Further, player X starts with five black tickets that can be whatever they want, and also hide what transportation they took. Further, black tickets can also be used by player X to catch a ferry up and down the river from specific spots, something the detectives cannot do. Don't feel too bad for the detectives though, because they also catch player X if they land on a detective, so all they have to do is surround player X. Easy, right? I've been lucky to get into more advanced board games just as my kids were born, otherwise I don't think I would have ever tried Scotland Yard, as I was always told it was just a kid's game. And don't get me wrong, it kinda is. It plays well at 2-6 players, but plays best at higher counts if you have an experienced player at player X, but better at low player counts if your player X is newer and could use a break. BGG has it listed as ages 10+, plus, and you can get hosed by the luck of the draw with the random start location tokens but you can also really mess yourself up with poor ticket play. Yet, my youngest started playing it with us around age 5 and playing well, and I found that older kids and adults can really play Scotland Yard at another level. So, I'd say it's not just a kid's game. Still, there are some ways Scotland Yard could be improved, and from what I've heard, the sequel Mr. X fixes some of those. But mostly, I feel like Scotland Yard works really well as an introduction to hidden movement games, something my son in particular really enjoys to play with me moving on to Spectre Ops but we do still enjoy breaking out Scotland Yard from time to time. And that's Scotland Yard, the hidden movement game now currently published by Ravensburger, though there is also an excellent iOS edition available as well. Thanks for listening through the years, and if you have any further questions about Scotland Yard, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hello, Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, excited to get nostalgic on this very special episode. Many of the games that I first played while exploring the world of so-called hobby gaming have already been chosen by my fellow contributors, so I decided to take a look back at a game that straddled the line between mass-market familiarity and new, interesting ways of looking at board games. A game that brought up new ways of thinking about games, and that while it didn't end up being a favorite, did set me on a path looking for other titles that would then take me further into the world of tabletop. That game was Risk Godstorm, a 2004 Mike Selinker design from Avalon Hill. This takes risk and adds a whole bunch of other things to it. Now, back when I bought the game, I hadn't actually ever played Risk. In fact, I still haven't played Risk. But my then-boyfriend reminisced a bit about it when I started looking into board games, and I'd read or heard somewhere that this was the gamer version of the game. Plus, I preferred the idea of its setting, so I went ahead and ordered a copy, probably from Amazon, as I don't think I'd discovered other options yet. 
Risk Godstorm is themed around classical mythology, with two to five players each taking control of an ancient civilization. Added on to the normal Risk rules are the ability to summon a pantheon of gods to perform miracles, the chance to use powerful artifacts to affect gameplay, and a separate underworld board where defeated armies go and from which they might even manage to be resurrected to fight again. In addition, there are a few key changes to the map. Some areas are suffering from a plague that will thin the ranks of occupying forces, and then there's the fact that one of the continents is Atlantis, and it just might sink at some point. To power much of the game's additions, there's a new resource in the form of Faith, which will be used to summon those gods of death, magic, sky, and war, as well as to build temples to the gods which give their owners points, defensive strength, and will be used to summon armies back from the underworld. Godstorm was a bit more interesting looking than many of the mass market games I'd played at the time. The armies are represented by soft plastic soldier and war elephant minis, and the gods by larger, more impressive figures. Now, the same sculpts are used for each army and set of gods regardless of its historical style, but the sculpts themselves are nice and robust with decent detail. And the color palette is also a little more interesting than the typically primary towns. The Harvest Gold and Burnt Orange armies of the Egyptian and Norse players, respectively, are a little tricky to tell apart. But since we never played with a full table of five, it was easily avoided for us. The various punchboard tokens and bits in the game are decent enough, though the cards are thin and easily damaged. Of course, at the time, they seemed normal to my newbie self, who likely was not aware of the term linen finished. Another thing that I had no idea about at the time I bought Risk Godstorm was the existence of the Board Game Geek website and the resources found within. The rules to the game were a bit tough to understand as a brand new gamer, and without a place to go with questions, well I know for a fact we've never played this game correctly. For one thing, we weren't able to figure out how the Underworld board really worked, and so while we knew it was important, we definitely didn't use it effectively. What ended up happening with Godstorm is that the experience gave me a feel for some of the more interesting things that board games can do, particularly the use of a resource like Faith to give you other options options on your turn. And the fact that the more familiar risk aspects were a lot less interesting to me led me to research and try such classic so-called gateway games as Small World, Dominion, and Pandemic, and after that I never looked back. In fact, I pulled out my old copy of Godstorm while writing this, and I realized that inside the box is a bit of a time capsule of how things used to be. The various minis are stored inside thin food storage bags instead of in the better quality baggies I now buy. There's a valiant effort made to store the game in the not-so-great manufacturer insert instead of throwing it away, and for some unknown reason, the cards were just loose in there, a fact that made me cringe with embarrassment. I was honestly surprised that the game hadn't fallen victim to one of my periodic collection purges, as it's been well over a decade since it saw play. And yet, apparently something kept me holding on to it, as there it was, tucked on the shelf of a cabinet that I rarely open. Godstorm may not be a game I played to death, but it was a game that opened my eyes to fresh possibilities and started me on the journey to the games I play now. Maybe we'll haul it back out sometime and see if we can do a better job raising the dead to fight again. At least once I do something about that storage. Let me know what games you used to play, and if you have a favorite version of a mass market classic, you can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It was 1987, spring of my freshman year, and I had a group of friends who loved to play board games. 
Back then, I thought board games meant either kids' games or Monopoly, but I wanted to get along with my new friends, so sure, I played games with them. I remember a few games that were fine, but didn't really click for me, but mainly they played Cosmic Encounter, which boy howdy did that one click. First of all, the outer space theme. I was and am an avid science fiction reader, and I think this was the first board game set in space I ever played. Now, if Cosmic Encounter had just been a generic 4X in space type game, I probably wouldn't have gotten so into it, but it had mechanisms I'd never encountered before. The asymmetric alien powers blew my 18-year-old mind. The aliens don't just provide a minor advantage, they break the game. You'd think that wouldn't work, wouldn't be a satisfying game experience. But everyone is breaking the game in ways that interact with sometimes bizarre, sometimes hilarious results. There's the virus who has the power to multiply. They multiply their ships and card value instead of adding. And the mirror has the power of reversal. They can transpose the digits of attack cards, turning, say, an attack 15 into a 51. But then there's Antimatter, who has the power of negation. Antimatter makes the lower total win an encounter, not the higher. Imagine what happens when these three are in the same encounter. And those are three of the simpler aliens. I'd like to say that every game of Cosmic Encounter was a new adventure as we tried out all the different aliens and discovered how they interacted. But the truth is that we did that for a while, and then we settled on the aliens we liked best and mainly played them. When we got bored with having the same aliens in every game, we started playing two aliens each, which made games much more chaotic and our characters way more overpowered. But since we were all overpowered, it worked out pretty well. My favorite story about Cosmic Encounter was about my friend Greg who often played the Filch. The Filch has the power of theft, and it's been nerfed somewhat in the new rules, but this was the 80s, we were playing the Eon Edition, and back then the Filch was allowed to steal any cards from the deck he could get away with. We could only stop him if we saw him in the act of lifting the cards. And if he got caught, we had to move the deck closer to him so it would be easier next time. One night there were four of us playing. Me, Greg, my friend Tanya, and her boyfriend Eric. I got up to use the bathroom. Tanya and Eric started fooling around right in front of Greg. What can I say? We were teenagers. Anyway, Greg was the filch, and while they were going at it, he stole the entire deck. I got back from the bathroom, and he was just sitting there with the whole deck in his hands. And it was early in the game, too. The deck was big. Now that would trigger a cosmic quake and reset the deck, but I don't remember how we dealt with having basically no deck in that game. I just remember Greg with a sly look on his face, going through that giant stack of cards to pick one for the next encounter. It was such a weird, funny moment. It was what I loved about Cosmic Encounter. Even the fact that more than one player could win Cosmic Encounter was huge. It's not a conventional game with one winner. It's not even a conventional alternative like co-op or teams. In Cosmic Encounter, the number of winners is completely fluid. There can be a single winner or a winning coalition, and who's in the coalition is constantly changing. I love the spin this puts on Runaway Leader. You can either join with the other players to gang up on the leader, or try to convince the leader that you're the one who can put them over the top, so you share the victory. It's up to you which is the best play. You might switch back and forth multiple times during a game. Despite the shifting alliances and a fair amount of take that in the powers, somehow Cosmic Encounter rarely felt too mean. I don't enjoy games about betrayal. For example, my college friends were also really into diplomacy, but I flatly refused to play. But Cosmic Encounter isn't a game about betrayal. It's a game about negotiation. There's the obvious way. In every encounter, you choose whether to attack or negotiate. 
And in the larger sense, the entire game is a series of negotiations over who's at odds and who's working together to win. Designed by Peter Alatka, Jack Kittredge, Bill Eberly, Bill Norton, and Kevin Wilson, and first published in 1977, Cosmic Encounter has been through many editions and publishers. Lucky for us, the current edition by Fantasy Flight Games is excellent. There are six expansions, I have all six, but you don't need them all to get started. A great set would be the base game plus Dominion, which includes tons of fun aliens, and add Incursion if you want to play with six people. Cosmic Encounter was only a little younger than I was when I first played it, and it had a huge impact on me. It shaped my understanding of what board games could be, and it gave me countless hours of fun. So many evenings sitting on that common room floor playing Cosmic Encounter with good friends. My only regret is that I haven't played it in decades, and since it's minimum three players, and better with four or more in my opinion, I don't know when I will again. But I just now learned of the existence of Cosmic Encounter Duel, a two-player variant. And my friendly local game store has it, which means I will have it by the time this episode drops. And that's Cosmic Encounter. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you were in that college game group and you remember which were my favorite aliens I used to always play. Then I really want to hear from you. Seriously, I can't remember and it's bumming me out. Both my husband's family and mine are gamer families. My parents descended from Canadian card-playing addicts who enjoyed games like Euchre, Cribbage, and Spite Malice. My parents especially loved Bridge, and as soon as my sister and I could coherently bid a short club around six years of age, we were co-opted into the game as a dummy player, while their fourth had to check on the turkey at Thanksgiving. I apologize if that sentence made zero sense to you. My husband's family didn't play cards, they were capital B board gamers. Somehow, someway, they always found and played the best games available. So Acquire, the game that I'm talking about here, was a family passion and pastime all the way back to its origins in the 3M bookshelf series. That original 1960s box that held so many family memories for four generations of Harmons was the one I got to play when I joined the family in 1998. I remember one particular visit with Grandpa Kent and Grandma LaFay where the game started with double funds because Grandma says more money means more fun. There was reverence for this game, and rightly so. A young Sid Saxon developed this game for 3M, and it was published in 1963, originally with a map that the tiles were placed on. It has been continually developed, modified, and published anew ever since. More than 15 years after it was originally published, it was shortlisted for the first Spiel de Jahres prize, which I think gives the game its Eurogame credentials. Acquires an economic game where players buy and sell hotel stocks in an effort to make the most money. Acquires game board is a grid organized by letters on one axis and numbers on the other. Turns are simple. From a hands of tiles, players take turns for slaying down a tile and then having a limited opportunity to purchase stock. Tiles are specific to grid locations, and when two tiles connect, one of seven hotel chains are created, with a nice little bonus for the player who made it. After that, the hotel's ownership group is slowly created turn by turn as players purchase stock. Players can purchase stock from any chain on the board, and majority ownership is hotly contested. Further tiles can be added to increase the size of a hotel chain and thus increase its value. When two chains are connected via place tile, they are merged together, leaving only one larger chain behind. Mergers are the exciting heartbeat of the game. Having a lot of stock in the chain being merged away brings a lot of money, which is so critical to being able to purchase more stock. On the other hand, owning majorities in the new large company means you are building long-term equity in one of the most powerful hotels in the game. 
Acquire requires depth attention to what stocks other players are buying and are interested in, and the ability to manipulate timing to your advantage. This brings the only limitation that I find with Acquire, that you have a hand of six tiles to choose from and draw randomly to refill your supply. This means in some games that a player might end up with all the consequential tiles for merging and manipulating the board state. This randomness can leave the serious player feeling cold, but there are enough compelling, interesting, tough decisions to counteract this, and in the end, smart buying of stock ends up winning the day. Acquire taught me to appreciate complex decision-making, and it made me excited to learn new games with more complex rule sets, knowing that the next great gaming experience was across the room in shrink wrap, just waiting to be learned. Five years ago, I got into modern board games thanks to the web series Tabletop. Will Wheaton's now-defunct show was a terrific introduction to the hobby. It was wonderfully produced, highly entertaining, and featured games that were like nothing I'd ever played before. I binged episodes like they were candy, often writing down the titles of games I planned on buying. I wound up buying Pandemic first, which I enjoyed greatly, but it didn't resonate with my wife Michelle. I continued to watch Tabletop, and a month later I bought Ticket to Ride, which we couldn't stop playing once it arrived on our doorstep. Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola, and for this special episode of The 5 by I'm looking at the game that brought me and my family into the hobby, Ticket to Ride. Designed by Alan Moon, with artwork by Cyril Dejon and Julien Deval, Ticket to Ride is published by Days of Wonder and was first released in 2004. Other events from that year include the airing of the final episode of Friends, the 74-game winning streak of Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings, and a Harvard student named Mark launching a website called The Facebook. But it's the release of this outstanding family game that I'll always associate with that year. Ticket to Ride is the perfect gateway game. Open the box and lay out that big gorgeous map of the US, and non-gamers immediately perk up as they see this isn't a standard Monopoly board. Hand out 45 plastic trains to each player in their chosen color, and deal out some train cards and destination tickets, and you've got everything you need to create a few new gamers. With only three pages of rules and a few simple illustrations, Ticket to Ride is a masterpiece in game design and won the Spiel de Jar in 2004. It continues to be a staple in game nights everywhere and has spawned over a dozen expansions. In Ticket to Ride, two to five players attempt to connect cities by claiming railway routes throughout the US and part of Canada. You score points based on the length of the routes you claim and also through endgame points on your destination tickets. The game's beauty lies in its elegant play. On your turn, you either draw two new train cards, place up to six of your trains by playing the matching colors on the map, or draw a new destination ticket. When any player whittles down their train supply down to zero, one, or two, then everyone plays one final turn and the game is over. You score your routes as you go, earning points depending on how many trains your route contains. The shortest routes are one train and score one point, while the six train routes will tally a whopping 15 points. It's this simple turn structure that makes this game so easy to learn and plays so briskly. You're never bogged down by rules clarifications or exceptions. If you have enough train cards, then play them to the matching color on the board and put your trains there. There's a locomotive that's a wild card, and there's no hand limit so you can draw to your heart's content. The game's best feature though is the destination ticket card. Each card has a route connecting two cities, which players hope to complete by the end of the game. If they do, then they'll score the points on the card, but if they don't, then they'll lose those points. These can be the points that swing the game one way or the other and provide the bit of strategic depth that makes the game replayable. I've taught Ticket to Ride several times over the years to players of all ages and abilities. It's always been a hit, and my favorite part usually happens at the end of the game 
when players ask where they can buy their very own copy. Best of all, the expansions offer plenty of variety while maintaining the basic structure of the game. Each expansion gives players a new map and a new mechanism such as the addition of tunnels, ferries, and stations in Ticket to Ride Europe. These require you to play your cards differently, and in the case of a station, the ability to use an opponent's route to connect to one of your own. I personally love the Pennsylvania expansion the best. The game is played entirely in the state of Pennsylvania and introduces stocks to the game. Whenever you claim a route, you can choose a stock that's listed on it, and at the end of the game, players are rewarded points based on who has the most of each stock available. It's a brilliant twist to the base game, and it's the expansion I always recommend to players who've grown tired of the original. Ticket to Ride, though, holds a special place in my gaming heart. While Pandemic was the game that got me into the hobby, Ticket to Ride is the one that brought my family along as well, for which I am forever grateful. I still have fond memories of that first week we owned the game. Michelle and I played every night, sometimes twice a night, and we still laugh at the seven-game winning streak she held at one point. Or the games played whenever our nephew and nieces would visit, with all of the joy and laughter of spending time with family. And this year, our daughter began playing a weekly online game of Ticket to Ride with her friends as a way to stay connected during these days of physical distancing. It's a game that's left an indelible mark on our family, as it has on countless others around the world. Ticket to Ride will remain a permanent fixture on our shelf. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, 5 by listeners. Thank you for joining us on our special 100th episode. So how did I get into board games? We all have our origin story about which game got us into the hobby, and for the most part, I answer Ticket to Ride and Catan, because those were the first hobby games I had ever encountered. From those two games, though, I discovered Board Game Geek, and as they say, the rest is history. But while TTR and Catan were the games that got me into the board game community pool, Arkham Horror is the one where I went scuba diving deep into the vast ocean. Arkham Horror became the third board game in my collection. Prior to that point in my life, I never encountered a game that was so epic and so entrenched in mythology, horror, and monsters. So many gruesome monsters. Arkham Horror, a game published by Fantasy Flight Games and designed by Richard Linius and Kevin Wilson in 2005, is a 1-8 to player game that plays in about 2-4 to four hours. It is the game that has spawned off countless expansions, spin-offs, dice games, and living card games, and that's just within the realm of the Fantasy Flight universe. How epic is this game? Well, for starters, the rulebook is 24 pages long. Imagine someone who at this point had only played Catan and Ticket to Ride trying to navigate the world of encounters, monster surges, gate markers, and elder signs. The game also comes with lots and lots of card decks, chits, cardboard counters, sanity and stamina tokens, and so much more. Yep, I totally was lost at the beginning, but then I found a series of grainy tutorial videos on BGG circa 2011 and eventually found my footing. And a couple years after that, I found a regular gaming group to play this game with almost every other month. The game can be a little bit fiddly to learn, but if you have a good teacher, it's quite the immersive experience. Set in the 1920s in the fictional town of Arkham, Massachusetts, players have 16 unique investigators to choose from, all with their own special abilities and skills, and they take to the streets working together to fight monsters, seal dimensional gates, and stop the Great Old One from awakening. Because if it does, and you can't defeat it, everyone is devoured, and the world ends. 
Sounds easy? Well, this game can be brutal. The board is composed of various neighborhoods, each containing a few separate locations, and they're all connected by streets. And if you get sucked into a gate, you might find yourself in other locations in the other worlds, trying to return to Arkham. Gameplay goes in phases. The first phase is upkeep, where players refresh their exhausted cards, perform upkeep actions, and adjust their skills. On your character sheet, there are six skills, Speed and Sneak, Fight and Will, and Lore and Luck. And they all come into play throughout the game. Each character has a slider, and you can move that around during this phase. But as the skills are paired, as you increase the strength in one, you'll weaken in the other. For example, increase your speed, and you're less likely to sneak past a monster. The second phase is when all players move their character about town, based on their speed. The third phase is an encounter phase. Players may choose to have an encounter at their present location, and there are many decks of specific neighborhood cards for this. Or if a player is at a gate, they get drawn into the other world, and yes, there's also a deck for that. The last phase is a mythos phase, where an event deck is read out loud to the table, usually spawning a gate on the board, monsters, and clue tokens, which can help in sealing gates, the main objective of the game. And we haven't even talked about all the monsters yet. Monsters interrupt movement because you have to successfully sneak past them if you don't want to fight it, or you can just fight them and hope your stamina and sanity don't get depleted. Or sometimes you just accidentally open up a gate and get devoured. It happens. This is just a really basic overview of the game. Within those encounters, players will need to use one of their skills to pass some kind of check in order to get information, collect items, heal, or a whole host of other things. There's magic, weapons, allies, and unique and common items, all that can help defeat monsters in the Great Old One. As more monsters and gates spawn onto the board, the Doom Track fills up and you're one step closer to meeting the Great Old One. If you love the Cthulhu world, or perhaps just enjoy monstrous adventures and some good old-fashioned dice chucking, then Arkham Horror is for you. Each game can be so different because of the cast of diverse characters available, and you have eight great old ones to randomly choose from for your game. Just make sure you devote a couple hours for playing. This game is not a short one. And that's Arkham Horror! This is Meeple Lady for the Five Eye. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you all join us for another 100 Five Eye episodes. Bye! Settlers' influence on the board gaming world is undeniably massive. It was the catalyst of a major upheaval in the worldwide board game scene, a massive wave traceable directly back to ripples started in the hobby in Germany. Over the last 25 years, opinions about Settlers have swelled with its popularity, receded with popular backlash, and settled into a comfortable constancy as the game rose from an enthusiast gem to a mainstream smash. Through that constancy, the industry renaissance Settlers triggered created division within its own fandom. Even the name by which one knows Settlers illustrates a stark dividing line in the community, between gamers introduced to it during its rise and those who know it only as a mainstream classic. Which is why those of you wondering why I think Imperial Settlers has such a huge impact on the industry might be surprised to find out I'm actually talking about the game you know as Catan. I don't think it's unfair to call the Settlers of Catan the granddaddy of the Eurogame, especially here in the US. And for me, despite technically having been a board gamer since the mid-1980s, it's absolutely the game I credit with launching my deep and unending love for the hobby. Back in 1998, Settlers swept through my friend group like a brush fire. I was part of a LARP known as Ampedguard, and every Saturday evening after spending the day hitting people with padded sticks, a group of us would retire to my apartment and play Settlers. For hours. 
sometimes all night. And that's not an exaggeration. In one poignant memory, we started playing at around 6 in the evening and disbanded at around 6 the next morning. These Settlers Saturdays continued uninterrupted for nearly six months straight. Over the course of that year, I played Settlers well over 100 times. That, while individual and anecdotal, might give you some context for just how massively popular and completely revolutionary Settlers was to American gamers. It was such an utter departure from the game's defining quote-unquote hobby board games in those days, games like Risk, Axis and Allies, and Talisman, that it was like hearing rock and roll for the first time after knowing only country. Here's how Settlers works. The game board is built of 19 hex tiles comprising five different terrain types and the desert, arranged in a large hex with three tiles to a side. That board is then surrounded by water tiles, some of which depict harbors for trading goods. Each productive terrain tile will have a number randomly placed atop it, which will determine when that hex produces resources during play. At the beginning of each turn, a player rolls two six-sided dice, and each hex matching the resulting number will produce goods for all players with a city or settlement at one of its corners. When a seven is rolled, the most common roll on two six-sided dice, no resources are produced, and all players holding more than seven resources must discard half of what they're hoarding. The active player must then move the thief token to any hex and steal a random resource from one of the players bordering that hex. If a player has a settlement or city on a harbor at the board's periphery, they can use that harbor to trade resources to the supply. But that's not the only way resources can be traded, bringing us to one of the most divisive mechanisms in Settlers, the trade phase. After players have collected resources, but before the active player builds, the active player can offer or solicit trades with other players. Non-active players cannot trade among themselves, and only resources can be traded. You can't, for example, offer to perform a specific action or trade a development card as part of a trade. Resources are then spent to build roads along the sides of hexes, settlements at the hex corners, or upgrade settlements into cities which grant the owner two resources when any of the bordering hexes come up in the die roll. A player can also use resources to purchase development cards which grant a wide array of benefits. Victory points are granted for each settlement and city you own, having the longest uninterrupted road, and certain development cards. The game ends when one player reaches 10 victory points. Settlers is pretty straightforward, but has definitely picked up its share of criticisms over the years. I called the trade phase divisive because relatively unrestricted trade phases like this are almost always divisive. In a good group, they'll fly by fast with players making quick decisions about offers and counteroffers. In the worst case scenario, though, a couple of players who muddle over negotiations or AP over calculating resource values can drag this phase out and bring the game to a screeching halt. Although the die roll is the core mechanism of the game's resource management engine, it is also the game's least loved aspect. Determinists despise its randomness, and randomized board setups can absolutely create resource hotspots that can give a player with favorable initial placement a baked in advantage. The placement advantage is definitely mitigatable by using semi-random setups, and one of my favorite tools is an app called Better Settlers, which uses an algorithm to create board setups with fair number placement. But there's a reason why Settlers has a thriving competitive scene. Like any competitive game with a random element, it's all about knowing the odds and learning how to bend them to your favor. The tastes of Eurogamers have changed over the years, and a lot of hobbyists tend to overemphasize Settlers' faults as other games have iterated and improved upon its mechanisms. The randomness can be frustrating, the thief can feel punitive, and a bad board setup can make the game feel predetermined. Despite those aspects, although Settlers of Catan may not come off my shelves that often anymore, after a quarter of a century and over a hundred plays, it's still a game I really enjoy. It has earned its vaunted place in the Eurogame canon and still has a lot to offer modern board gamers even without the backing of nostalgia like mine. Don't listen to the haters. Settlers, 
sorry, Catan, is still a fantastic game. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. Today, I am so excited to share with you one of my favorites. This game was my entryway into worker placement games, and it's still my favorite, even today. Today's game of the day is Lords of Waterdeep by Wizards of the Coast. It's designed by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, with artists Eric Baselli, Stephen Belden, Zoltan Boros, and Noah Bradley, just to name a few. Lords of Waterdeep was previously covered by the lovely Miss Ruth on episode 46, so go check it out. In this strategic worker placement game, the players take on the role of one of the mass Lords of Waterdeep, the secret rulers of the city. Your goal is to gain points or resources to expand the city by purchasing new buildings that may hinder or help other players in the games, as well as other methods such as completing quests or by having players help you out by using buildings or vice versa. At the end of eight rounds, the player who has gotten the most points wins. Lords of Waterdeep is a great strategic game to bring into your educational space. But before I get into some tips on how you can do this, there are a couple of important things to keep in mind before incorporating Lords of Waterdeep into your educational space. First, timing. This game is a little bit longer. It has an estimated playtime of 60 to 120 minutes, according to BoardGameGeek. Due to the longer playtime, I would recommend having a session zero to go over the mechanics and overview of the game. This would be a good time to go over what each space means, what a sample turn looks like, etc. For example, I know I have said this before, but Take your time to develop a player aid that can help the players check for understanding while the game is going on. For my visual learners, it is a great tool and it also helps those players that may be embarrassed to ask a question. Please note, there's never a bad question in gaming, so make sure to prep your gameplay with the expectation that if you have questions, ask them. Next, the theme. The game has a Dungeons and Dragons theme. Even though Dungeons and Dragons have elements of magic and monsters, the theme of the game doesn't really interfere that much to introduce it with caution. I've noticed that my students are more focused on the different spots and elements of the game than the theme. They just think they're all warriors conquering the map, which in a way is true. I would suggest focusing on the worker placement components of the game because this style can be new to new gamers. You will also have to consider the age and grade. I was thinking really hard about what age and grade would be appropriate for Lords of Waterdeep because I can see it definitely being for teens 13 and up because of the worker placement theme and how it is more of a strategic game. But as I explore and teach games to more students that are younger than 13, I am noticing as long as you explain it clearly and properly prepare them on how to learn the game, then you could do ages 10 to 12 gaming with this game. So really take into consideration the abilities of your players and just how they learn to determine if this game would be enjoyable for them. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the level and rate of others, so please keep that in mind when introducing games to players. Don't be afraid to modify the game to fit your group you're playing with. Definitely, I know I'll say this again, player aid, player aid, player aid. Or you can make a player aid in the form of a Google slide presentation that you can have being put up on the screen of what you can do during a turn. Tag teaming would be a great idea for this game because it can be overwhelming to try and figure out what would be the best move to take with limited resources. 
It also allows players to strategically work together and collaborate to have the best possible outcome in the game. You could also have a player that doesn't want to participate be in charge of resetting and giving quests, handing out resources, money, etc. Make sure to give them a fancy title because kiddos always love fancy titles and roles. All right, everyone. Now let's talk about how Lords of Waterdeep can be used in your classroom or in your own educational space. Not only can board games be fun, they can also provide a great learning experience. I'm going to share a couple of tips on how this game can fit into different educational subjects. If I taught this in my public speaking class, I would have my kiddos write a victory speech that they would read to the class about them winning the game, where they were to have to express feeling and excitement for their victory. But if they lost, they would have to write on the spot a losing speech on what caused them to lose and what they need to do better next time to claim victory. In the theater realm, I would have my kiddos practice set design to build and design what the city of Waterdeep would look like. And lastly, in art class, you can have your artists do the same set design project in theater, but have them incorporate different styles of art and sculpture to create the city. Well, everyone, there are so many things to do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. The Five By is a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and support the show on patreon.com slash fivebygames if you're feeling generous. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the handle fivebygames, or you can simply go to fivebygames.com to find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our episodes, contributor bios, and the official podcast store. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.